Okay. So, nobody, nobody. All right. All right. We're missing a few today. I didn't scare them away in this class, I didn't think, as much as I did in the other one, at least in terms of drops. Um, we have a homework assignment that is due on Friday, the first homework assignment. And again, you can turn that in here on Friday. You can also submit it to the homework drop box on D2L anytime Friday through 6 o'clock Saturday morning and it's still considered on time. Quiz 1 will also be available on Friday. That covers the first two chapters, Chapter 0, which we finished, and Chapter 1, which we'll get through most of today and certainly finish it by Friday. So you'll be through all that material. It will be available through till when we come back after the, after the holiday. So it'll be available through the 5th of September. So again, I'll remind you of that when we come back on Wednesday. So if you didn't remember to take it and we're waiting to the last minute, then you still have a few more last minutes left to be able to get it. First exam is going to be September 7th. I am going to make sure we do it then just because I, I want to get one in before that last drop deadline. So I'm going to do that on the 7th. It'll cover chapters 0 through 2 as long as we get through all of chapter 2. If we don't get through all of chapter 2, it'll cover whatever we get through of chapter 2 up through Wednesday. So I'm planning on that right now. Most likely we'll have a good chance of getting through all, if not almost, almost all, if not all of chapter 2 on the, at the rate we're going right now. So we should be pretty close to covering almost exactly, almost exactly what it calls for there. And then the first set of solar observations is due in September, on September the 14th, a week later. And again, that's just all I need there is the co copy of your data sheet would be fine. Write them on a separate piece of paper is fine, however you want to do it. But the date, the time, sky conditions, the date, time, sky conditions, the length of the shadow, and the height of your object. And I'll go look at them and I'll let you know, make sure you're on the, see if you're on the right track or not and try to catch any problems early on. So, questions? Questions? Yes, ma'am. Do we have to do 10? It's 10 with the solar I'm looking for, ten, for full credit at the end of the semester, I'm looking for 10 spread over the semester. Oh, okay. So if you make 10 between the beginning of class and the end of September, don't stop. They've, they've, you've got to get them over the whole semester to really be able to okay. do it. So, but yeah, 10 is for, you know, if you only get 7 or 8, you won't get full credit on the data part. You won't get a 0 on the left, but you'll lose some credit on it. Okay. But yeah, I'm looking for 10, so roughly, roughly one every week and a half is what, you, is what you really need to try to get. I mean, that's the best. If you can get them nicely spaced out through the semester is the best just in terms of being able to analyze them later. Other questions? <laughs> 2020. We got everybody. Okay. All right. Well, picture of the day for today, and I'm going to turn this off so you can actually see it a little bit better. Still does not come out. It's really hard to see this. You can see we're looking. This is actually a picture taken from the International Space Station, and you can see part of that here in the foreground. There's the solar panels, part of the solar panels there that power the space station. There's the robotic arm that is used for manipulation of items out in space. And you're looking from the space station down on the Earth. So you can see part of the night surface of the Earth here, where you can see you know, various parts where it's illuminated, the more metropolitan areas where it's very, very bright. And they actually will glow from space. If you look at, you know, especially North America, if you looked at the east coast of North America like this, it glows very, very bright. And if you look at you know, Northern Europe, Western Europe looks very similar, very bright. You know, all the big cities there glowing 
Here you've got some more deserted areas. Which are some of the reasons that astronomers do not put their telescopes in you know, the big cities. You know, you have the big universities. Uh, big universities are in the big cities, right? You know, Harvard's in Boston, but they don't, their observatories are way out in you know, Arizona. They're way out in Arizona. They're way out in Hawaii. They're out of the way just because the Earth is so light polluted, especially near the big cities, that you can't, can't see anything there. Now, a couple of, see a few clouds in there scattered around. So most of you are seeing this over there. There's a couple of clouds. The bright cloud over here is one of the things that it's pointing out. That's actually a lightning storm. So you're seeing a lightning storm from above instead of below as you're used to seeing it. But the main point of this picture is the red sprite, which is very hard to see in this projection. You really almost need to look at it on, on, an, on your own computer you know, where you can see it in a little more detail. But right up above this, you can sort of see a hazy little red patch. And if you can see that there, I'm not sure, but there's a little bit of a red patch just up above that lightning glow. And again, it's very hard to see on here. You can see it. It's, if you pull it up on the screen, you can actually see an image of it a little bit better, but not near as well. But a red, what it is, it's called a red sprite. And it's related to lightning, apparently. The lightning, the typical lightning, the white is what you're used to seeing when you see a lightning strike. The red sprites are something that were talked about for many, many years and people had claimed to have seen them. But there was no actual photographic proof of them until just a couple decades ago, until the late 1980s was the first time one was actually photographed. So they're sort of a mystery. It's not understood. You know, we understand a little bit more what's going on with regular lightning. We don't really understand the red sprites or why they occur. But they're up there. They are there. We do have proof of them. You have multiple images now where we've actually seen this little reddish glow that is sometimes appears to be associated with the lightning. But what causes it or why they appear or how they're related to anything else is something that scientists still do not completely understand. So as I know, you can't really see it here. If you get a chance, you know, pull it up on your own, on your own you know, laptop, desktop, whatever. Pull up the website there. That picture will come up you know, for the rest of the day till midnight today, and you can see it. It'll also be in the archives forever. If you go down to the bottom of this, you can always, if you want to look at an older picture, if you missed one or you're looking at one for the quiz, if you go to the archives down here, it'll actually bring up a list of all the pictures that have ever been done since the mid-1990s when the site started. So I can't really give you any more explanation about it. Interesting image of it, but can't really give you any more explanation or tell you much more about the red sprites because we really don't know anything else about them. Questions? I'll try, but other than that, I don't really know a lot more about them. Okay. Turn the light back on. Oops. It's open. All righty. No questions, then we will go on to chapter one and see how much of chapter one we can get through today. We were looking at this last time and we were talking about the motions of the planet. We were talking about them, how the planets appeared to move in the sky and how we used epicycles in order when we had the Earth at the center we had to use epicycles to explain what we called the retrograde motion of the planets. Now, the retrograde motion of the planets is that backward motion. So essentially, as you were watching the planets moving through the sky, they were moving, you know, like me, they're moving in one direction. Sun and the moon keep doing this. They just move in one direction. But the planets would decide at some point to stop, go back for a little bit, stop again, go back. 
And it was difficult to explain that with the Earth at the center, because you'd think Earth at the center, everything's going around in nice, simple circles. It should be making nice circles around the Earth. So we had to come up with more complicated methods to explain what was actually seen. We had to explain the facts that we saw, that we saw in the sky. We could see the planets were going, undergoing retrograde motion. So our theory had to be able to explain them. Retrograde motion in a heliocentric or sun-centered universe is explained much more simply. All it is is the Earth is passing the planet. So the orbit of Mars is here. Mars going around the sun. Orbit of Earth is here. Earth going around the sun. The lines are just projecting as to where we'd see Mars against the background stars as we pass it since we're moving a little bit faster. And what it comes up naturally is that at certain points as we're passing it, it's going to make it look like it goes backwards. And again, sort of like on the highway passing another vehicle, it looks for a little while like it's going backwards relative to you. And it is relative to you, it does going backwards. Relative to the ground, no, it's still going forwards, you know, 65, 70 miles an hour. But relative to you, it's going to be going backwards as you pass it. That's exactly the same thing that's happening here. We're passing Mars and we're making it look like it goes backwards for a short time. So it's a perfectly natural explanation, no more complicated, not all these epicycles to explain the exact motions of the planets. Now we'll come back in a couple slides to exactly all the different patterns of the planets and how they were explained. But I want to take a little aside here and talk about one other astronomer. I'll talk about one of the astronomers we'll look at and that was Galileo. And Galileo Not, not the inventor of the telescope. It was actually invented a um, little while before, before him, not that long, a few, few uh, five, ten years. But he'd heard about it and he was the one who had the great idea of not just using the telescope to look at things on the Earth to see things closer, but he saw that it would do that and he wondered what would it do looking at astronomical objects? What would it do to looking at objects in the sky? And he made these observations and he actually saw a number of different things. So he was really the first to turn the telescope to the sky and to record his results. So he observed the moon. He saw craters on the moon. If you look at the moon, you can see that it has some kind of structure to it. You can't really see directly any craters. Not with your naked eye. Telescope binoculars, yes, you can see some of the larger craters but nothing that you can see with your naked eye. And that was one important thing. And what we're going to see is that all of these were important in changing the view from the idea that the Earth was the center of the solar system to that the Sun was the center of the solar system. You know, Copernicus suggested that. We mentioned him. Copernicus suggested you know, that maybe the Sun would be at the center of the solar system. Maybe it would explain things a little more easily. But it was not accepted at the time. It wasn't until much later that it actually became the accepted model of how the universe and how the solar system worked. What Galileo did was make a lot of observations that sort of helped to knock down the old geocentric theory. The geocentric theory was based on the idea that the heavens were perfect and unchanging. Galileo found a lot of things that were, not, that were in contradiction to that. So nothing that Galileo ever found proved that the Earth orbited around the Sun. 
That was not found until much later when we detected precession. We could actually prove that the Earth was moving. But he did find a lot of things that were kind of contradictory towards the earlier thoughts. One of them was craters on the moon. Because the moon was in the heavens, it's supposed to be perfect. And it wasn't. Here it was. It looked like it was all beat up just like the surface of the Earth. It's got mountains, it's got valley, it's got craters. You know, it's not all that different than the Earth. Well, maybe it's just too close to the Earth, it's corrupted by us, you know, so maybe it's not as perfect as other things in the heavens would be that were a little bit further away. So look at something a little further away. How about the Sun? He saw sunspots. So, sunspots are dark patches on the surface of the sun. We'll talk about them in much more detail when we get to the chapter on the sun. But, again, they were evidence that the sun wasn't perfect. Now that's a big one. You know, the moon was one, but it's close to the earth. Maybe it's, just, you know, it's corrupted by us and that. But the sun is what's giving all the energy and light and heat and everything that we need. It's certainly in the heavens. It has to be perfect. But it wasn't either. It had these splotches on its surface. It had dark spots on its surface. And you could watch them. You knew they were on the sun's surface, not anything else, because you could watch them rotate with the sun. So you'd watch to see them today and come back a couple days later and you'd see them move across the face of the sun. Again, still nothing that shows that the Earth was not the center of the solar system, but sort of putting a, a little dent in the idea that the heavens are perfect. The moon isn't perfect. The sun isn't even perfect. Now a couple big ones that he saw. The moons of Jupiter. Take a small telescope or even a good pair of binoculars to Jupiter and you'll find that it has, well, four stars that you can see, stars in quotes, that are orbiting around it. So it actually has four satellites that orbit around Jupiter. Yeah, there's a lot more that we've discovered now, but four that are very bright and that can be easily seen with a small telescope or even a pair of binoculars from the Earth and able to see those. Now why was that so big? Again, it doesn't prove anything about what the Earth is doing, but it did show that we knew Jupiter, again in the old theory, Jupiter was orbiting around the Earth, but something was orbiting around Jupiter while it was orbiting around the Earth. So it was possible to have multiple centers of motion. You could have things orbiting. You could have things orbiting the Earth. You could have things orbiting Jupiter. And the Earth could be, Moon could be, Jupiter could be orbiting the Earth, if that was the theory. And the Moons could still be orbiting around it. Recall, we haven't done gravity yet. There's no concept of gravity or how that works at this point. We haven't quite gotten there. We're start, just starting to understand how things move. But, so it was thought that, you know, how could something orbit anything that was moving? It would get left behind. So Jupiter would be moving around the Earth and these moons would get left behind in its orbit almost immediately. So there was not an understanding of gravity as to how Jupiter is bringing the moons along with it, that there's a constant motion there. So that's one. That was a big thing because that was objects that were not orbiting the Earth. First time we'd seen things that were not orbiting Earth. Again, didn't mean the Earth was moving, but it's pushing us in that direction. We now see something, we said everything orbits the Earth before, and here's something where they aren't. It's very definite that these moons of Jupiter were going around Jupiter. 
You could watch them go from one side of Jupiter to the other over periods of a couple of days to a couple of weeks, depending on the specific moon. So that was the first evidence there that something did not, did everything, in the, everything in the universe did not orbit the Earth. And that was one of Galileo's findings. The big one was the phases of Venus. Phases of Venus were important because they did prove that Venus had to orbit the Sun. If Venus orbited around the Earth, you would only see it as a very thin crescent because it always has to be between the Earth and the Sun. That's where we see it in the sky. So it would always be a very thin crescent. When Galileo observed it, he found that you might see a very thin crescent sometimes. Other times as it went further through its orbit, you'd see a half phase, quarter phase. You'd see an almost full phase as it got towards the other side of the Sun. It went through a complete cycle just like the Moon. And this was a demonstration that Venus had to orbit the Sun. So Venus must orbit the Sun. That's the only theory that would work. It didn't prove that the Earth had to orbit the Sun. It did show that Venus had to orbit the Sun. Because the only way you could get a complete cycle of phases of Venus was if Venus was orbiting around the Sun. You could make, and was made, a sort of roundabout um, theory that had the Earth at the center, and here's the Sun going around the Earth, and then you'd have the planets going around the Sun. It works. It will explain the phases of Venus just as we see them. It, again, we got to remember, we don't understand gravity. We, gravitationally, it makes no sense, right? It doesn't make any sense if, you, if you've looked at gravity before. Why are things orbiting like this? It doesn't make any sense. But in terms of the actual motions, it explains everything that we see. And that was made by an astronomer you know, of the time that explained all the, could explain all the observations but left the Earth at the center because this did not really prove anything. So none of Galileo's really proved that the Earth had to move. But they certainly suggested it. You know, once you've got the Earth, you know that Venus had to orbit the Sun. Once you have Venus orbiting the Sun, you've got other planets are probably orbiting the Sun. So why is the Earth? Why is the Sun orbiting the Earth with all the planets? You're still, no matter what you do, you have so many, you're getting a lot more centers of motion, a lot more things that are at the center of something. Now, two more that aren't listed there that I'm going to mention for you are. <laughs> The rings of Saturn, well, almost. His telescopes were not powerful enough to be able to see the rings of Saturn. Galileo's telescopes, first ones that he made, were a few centimeters in size. I mean, they were talking centimeters in size, so the, the lenses were that small. Now, that's as small of a pure lens that you could get at, the, get at the time, and he worked on developing larger one. And he was getting magnifications of, you know, 10, 20, 30 times. So nothing compared to even the little cheapy telescopes you can buy today, but a big, big, big jump over your naked eye. Big, big jump. So he didn't quite see the rings of Saturn. What he saw was that Saturn was here, and there was a big blob out here and a big blob out here. 
He didn't have the power to be able to actually see it as the rings as you could. Even in a relatively small, you know, a six or eight inch telescope will be able to show you the rings of Saturn. He didn't quite have that power in his telescope. But he knew that there was something there. It didn't move like the moons of Jupiter did. But they disappeared at times. So you'd see them for a number of years and he'd watch them. And then there would be times when Saturn was there. You know, a few years later you'd have just Saturn. It's two friends were gone. So it wasn't something we completely understood what's going on there. What's really going on is that those rings are about relatively the thickness of a piece of paper. You know, relative to the size of Saturn. Obviously they're, they're many miles thick, but compared to the size of Saturn, Saturn, they're really this thin. So if you look at them like this, you're going to see them. If you look at them like this, if I can get that to about eye level for you, you don't see much of anything. You're looking at them edge on and they're going to be almost invisible. So here you're looking at them tilted towards us and we can see a big bulge on either side, something. A few years later when Saturn was oriented around in its orbit so that we couldn't see them, so that they're all going flat, you're looking at the very edge of the piece of paper, they disappear. So he didn't quite understand exactly what he saw there, but he knew that there was something going on with Saturn and that like the moon and the sun, it wasn't perfect. Now, it's not a perfect, it's got these objects that come and go, there's something else odd going on with it. The last thing he saw was stars in the Milky Way. Okay, big, big deal, right? He took the Milky Way, if you ever had a chance to go out, you know, go out camping, someplace really dark, and you can usually see that little faint band of light that stretches across the sky, which is our own galaxy. Now, before this time, it was thought that it was just this, you know, band of light. It wasn't anything special, but when Galileo turned the telescope there, he found that it was actually made up of a multitude of stars. Now, earlier on, the earlier beliefs were that the stars were fixed in number. There was some number of stars and that's it. So that's why when things like a new star appeared, a supernova explosion thousands of years ago, it was something very, very, you know, very detrimental. Something bad was going on because a star, a new star has appeared in the sky. So finding all these new stars sort of got against the idea. Again, the universe was perfect that there were a certain number that was taught by the ancient Greeks that there were to some number of stars and that was fixed and nothing else was changing. So all the things he found gave us evidence, helped us to consider that possibly the Earth at the center, you know, he proved that the Earth couldn't be at the center of everything. Finding Venus proved that. But he actually gave a lot of evidence that maybe the Earth is not the center of anything. Maybe the Sun is at the center and the Earth is just one of those planets that's orbiting around it. Now let me see, I think the next one yeah, this is the one I'm going to go through. I'll try to explain the phases of Venus with a picture a little bit easier than in words. If you look at the two examples, these are the two possible theories that you can have. You can have an Earth-centered or you can have a Sun-centered. When you look at the Earth-centered, if they're Sun-centered at the top, you have the Earth here, Venus moving around, so Venus would change in size. It would get a very thin crescent here, very thin crescent, thicker, half, and it gets small, the, the, size of the size gets smaller and smaller and the phase gets larger and larger. 
So you actually go from a very large, thin crescent to a very small, full Venus. That's the prediction that having the Sun at the center and Earth and Venus orbiting around them makes. That's what Galileo saw. He was able to see all these different phases from an almost full phase as it got closer and closer to the Sun to a very thin crescent phase. Now, if you go back with Ptolemy's model, the older model, that said the Earth was at the center. So the Earth is at the center. Here's Venus orbiting around. There's Venus's epicycle. So sometimes it gets a little bit closer. Sometimes it gets a little bit further away. That explains size difference, so that works. Sun here orbiting around the Earth as well. Now one thing you have to do in his model is to keep the Sun and the center of Venus's orbit on the same line. So the Sun can't be over here while Venus's orbit is here because we never see that in the sky. Venus is always very close to the Sun. So what they did in the model to account for the observations we make is to fix this line between the Earth and the Sun was fixed and Venus's, the center of Venus's orbit was locked between the Earth and the Sun. Then Venus moved around its epicycle, it would get further into the morning sky, it would get further into the evening sky, but it would never get very far away from the Sun. But the phase is because it's always between the Earth and the Sun, you'd see a new, almost new phase, thin crescent, maybe a little bit thicker crescent, then the crescent gets thinner and thinner and when you get to the far side, furthest away from the Earth, you'd get a new phase again. You wouldn't be able to see anything. You would never see a full phase of Venus under the geocentric model. You would never be able to see that full phase. So that was the proof. That was the proof that Venus had to orbit the Sun. Again, you could work a roundabout model that works similar that would not explain, that would explain this observation. It wasn't until later that we were able, it became accepted, but it wasn't until much later that it was actually proved that the Earth had to be moving when we detected the parallax of the stars, the motions of the stars due to the Earth moving in its orbit. So what Galileo discovered really was a good start towards proving that the Earth was at the center, but he never gave us anything that actually verified, that said that, yes, the Earth has to move gave us a lot of good evidence towards it, but nothing that would actually prove it. All right. But we're trying to understand that. So some other astronomers at the time were taking that, okay, the Earth is at the center, the Earth is not at the center anymore. It moves. And one of those was Johannes Kepler. And Kepler came up with three laws of planetary motion for us. And I'm going to go over those here that explained how the planets moved. Now I've got to go back one step to a previous astronomer that I didn't and should have included on here and I did not. An astronomer named Tycho Brahe who actually is the one who gathered all the data that Kepler used. So Kepler was the mathematician who analyzed all of this data. Tycho was the, was the observer. He's the one who actually went out and observed these planets. And every, every night he'd go out, he'd make very detailed, extremely accurate observations of the planets and measure their positions relative to the stars. And then Kepler took that data and analyzed it, trying to understand how the planets moved. And Kepler found first that the orbits of the planets 
are ellipses. Remember, circles. Everything was circles before this. Everything moved in a circle. The sun moved in a circle around the earth. The planets moved in circles around the earth. Even Copernicus had the sun at the center, but the earth moved in a circle around the sun. Mars moved in a circle. around. Everything moved in circles. Again, it was still that bias from early on that everything in the heavens was perfect. So everything moved in a perfect circle. That's not the case. It's actually that they're in ellipses. Ellipse is a squashed circle. Think of it that way. Start a circle and squash it a little bit. The way you can draw an ellipse is demonstrated here. You take two points. If you don't want to draw a circle, you take one point, right? One point with a string and just draw around a circle. To draw an ellipse, you need two pins and you know, a piece of string or something, and you draw another circle around like that. Depending on how close together you put those pins, tells you how squashed your circle will be again. The farther you get them apart, you're going to get a very wide circle, a wide ellipse like this. If you put those foci very far apart, if you put them very close together, as best a circle I can draw freehand like that real quick, it looks pretty much like a circle. Now, why we never found this before? Why did we never figure out that the planets were ellipses a long time ago? You think there's a big difference between this and this. And the problem was, was that the ellipses that the planets follow are very, very close to being a circle. In fact, if I drew them, if I drew them, showed you the ellipse, showed you the pictures of them all, you couldn't tell the difference with your naked eye. Just looking at them, they're going to look like it's a circle. If I draw you a scale picture of the Earth's orbit, it looks exactly like a circle to you. If I draw you a scale picture of Mercury's orbit, it's going to look exactly like a circle. Even Pluto, which is very, very squashed, more so than any of the main planets, it actually still looks like a circle to your naked eye. So it wasn't that they didn't understand or didn't want to, it was that there was not enough accurate observations to differentiate between something that is truly a circle and something that's an ellipse, but very, very close to being a circle. Now some of the terms that you'll see come back up in here are defined on the, are given on this here. We call the closest approach, here's the, here's the sun with the planet orbiting it, the closest approach is perihelion. That's when an object is the closest to the sun. Aphelion is when the object is furthest away from the sun. So for the Earth, when we talk about the seasons, we're closest to the sun in January. So in January we're at perihelion, about 91 million miles from the sun. In July we're at our furthest from the sun, about 95 million miles. So the, sun, the Earth's distance varies a little bit, but when you think about that, that's about 4 million miles out of 93 million miles. It's not a big variation. It's not like the Earth goes from being 93 million miles here and it goes down to 12 million miles. Well, that's a big difference. That would be a really squashed ellipse. But just that couple little, that's just a couple percent, you really can't even notice the difference. Okay. Um, the other ones, what else did I give you? The major axis. Major axis is just the long axis of the ellipse. We call it a diameter in a circle. Diameter is wherever you go. In terms of an ellipse, you have a major axis, which is the very longest diameter of the ellipse, if you want to think about it that way. And you'd also have a minor axis, which is the smallest, which would be up here. The one that astronomers often refer to is the semi-major axis, which is half of this. It goes from the center to one edge. 
That is the average distance between the Sun and the planet. And that's what you'll see referred to. We don't usually say this, the Earth's orbit or the Earth's distance to the Sun ranges between 91 and 95 million miles. We usually say the Earth is about 93 million miles from the Sun. Because that's the average distance if you average it over the entire year. And the other number, that's what we give by A. So A is the semi-major axis, which is half this distance. E is what we call the eccentricity. That tells us how squashed the ellipse is. A circle would have an eccentricity of zero. The two pins are exactly in the same spot, and you draw that, and you'll get an exact circle. If you go out towards bigger and bigger as it gets close to one, that becomes much, much more squashed. So the ellipse would get much, much more squashed as you went out. All right. Second law is called the equal areas law. I love the way this one is defined. This is the formal way it was written by Kepler. Would have said that an imaginary line collect connecting the sun and the planet sweeps out equal areas in equal times. We still haven't gotten to gravity, so we have no understanding of this. Kepler did this all geometrically. He would have mapped out the orbit and decided that, okay, this took you know, three months to go from here to here, and this took three months to go from here to here, and this took three months to go from here to here. That's a pretty good thing to come up with 500 years ago. You know, no computers to say, oh, is there some pattern here? Search for a pattern. I'll come back tomorrow or next week and find out if you found anything. You know, you got to do all the calculations by hand, figure out exactly where this is, plot it out, you know, actually physically plot it, and then measure and measure this and, and measure this area. So not something that would be very easy to do. But you know, the, what he found it doesn't tell you a lot. It doesn't really have a lot of meaning. That saying this sweeps out equal areas and equal times really doesn't tell us what's going on. What the second law really means is that's correct that it's the equal areas law, but it means that the planet is moving faster when closer to the sun. So that's what it's really telling us. Physically, that's what it means. That makes a lot more sense. I mean, th yes, this is the formal statement of the law, but what it's really telling us is that it took three months, say, to go from here to here in area C. It took us three months to go from here to here in area A. Well, it traveled some distance here. It traveled some much smaller distance here in the same amount of time. It must have been moving a heck of a lot faster here than it is here. Again, this is greatly exaggerated, but it is, it is correct. The Earth does move faster in its orbit in January. It does move slower in its orbit in July, which makes the seasons uneven. If you count up the days between, you know, between in each season, you find out that winter is actually a couple of days shorter than summer. Not extreme, but you know, one is one averages to 91 or 92 days and the other is like 88 or 89. It's a couple days difference because the Earth is moving faster in its orbit around December, January time than it is in June, July time. If the orbit were more elliptical, it would become even more extreme. And we'll see that in the, when we get to the section on the solar system when you look at comets. Comets have orbits that really do look like this. 
and they come and are really close to the sun for a period of time, a short period of time, and they spend most of their time way out here in the depths of space where you don't see anything, where you don't see them at all. Halley's Comet is a good example. Halley's Comet orbits once every 76 years. So it was back in the mid-1980s when it came in. And it was here for a couple years, for a year or two, it came in relatively close to the sun and you could see it, it was bright for a couple of years. It's now way out here someplace and we're not going to see anything of it for, you know, 70 till the 2050 something, 2061, I don't remember the exact date. But when it comes back again in, th- in you know, another 40, 20, 30, 40 years, then we'll be able to see it again. Most of the time it spends way out here in the depths of space moving very slowly comes in, whips around the sun in a couple of years, and heads back out there again. We only get to see it for that very short time. Now that's a more extreme example as compared to the Earth. Yes, there's a difference, and yes, you know, winter is a couple days shorter than summer. But then that is part of what Kepler discovered as to why that is the case. So equal areas law but really means that the planets move, planets move faster when they're closer to the sun and slower when they're further away. The last one, easiest way to write it is as an equation. It's written out in words there if you want to write it fully out too. The square of the period of a planet, so how long does that planet take to orbit around the sun once? one year for the Earth, right? For the Earth, P is one year, right? Takes us one year to go around the Sun once. A, again I mentioned that before, that's the semi-major axis, that's the average distance of the planet to the Sun. The Earth, that's 93 million miles, right? But it's also one astronomical unit. So A cubed is 1 cubed. 1 times 1 times 1 is 1, right? So 1 cubed is 1. 1 squared is 1 times 1 and they're equal. And that's what the table here from the textbook is showing you is that for each of the planets if you look at what their what their average distance from the sun is, what their orbital period is, and you convert it to years. So Mercury orbits in about a quarter of a year. Neptune takes 163 years to go around the sun once. There's a relationship between that and how far they are from the sun. Mercury is about four-tenths of an astronomical unit from the sun. Neptune is about 30 astronomical units from the sun. So as you get further away, the distance increases, so does so does the orbital period. And if you go through and you calculate this, so you take A and you cube it, so 0.387 times 0.387 times 0.387 and see how that compares to 0.241 times 0.241, you get that it's very, very close to 1. So each of them, in fact, if you look at 1.002, all to within, you know, a fraction of a percent, they're very close to what Kepler said, that there is a relationship between these. Now we'll come back. Kepler's laws, especially number three, you're not done with. You're going to see that quite a bit over the rest of the semester. 
because astronomers can use this one. There's actually a better version of it that Newton came up with that explains how, that actually explains how it works and why it works, but also uses it to determine the mass. You can use it by looking at stars orbiting each other, galaxies orbiting each other, and you can use a version of this law to determine masses in the solar, in the, in the solar system, in the universe, which is something you can't normally get. It's hard to get a mass of something. You can't go out and weigh a star directly. You can't go out and weigh a galaxy. This is how we can go about actually determining masses. So how do we get the astronomical unit? Just sort of as a little aside here. We defined that earlier, that the distance between the Earth and the Sun is one astronomical unit. How do we determine that? How do we measure what that distance is? Now, How do we measure how far the Sun is away? I told you it's 93 million miles. How do we get that? We can't send a spacecraft to the Sun and back. You know, send a spacecraft to the Sun, it's not coming back. It's going to be melted. You can't... talks about radar signals here. Well, you can't send a radar signal to the Sun either. Try to bounce a radar signal off the sun. The sun emits radio waves itself. It would interfere with them and you'd never get a signal back. Plus the fact that it doesn't have a solid surface to bounce off. So what you, but what you can do is measure the distance to Venus. You know that the Earth is one astronomical unit. We don't know what that number is in miles or kilometers. But we know that it's one astronomical unit. We can know how far Venus is. About 0.7 astronomical units. So when they're at their closest, we know exactly how far Venus is away from us in astronomical units. If we want to determine how far away it is in physical units, how many miles, how many kilometers, then we can bounce a radar signal off it. Venus will reflect radar signals, so we can send a radar signal to it, wait for it to come back, and how long that takes just depends on the distance. That radar signal will travel at the speed of light. So it will take it what, about two and a half minutes to get there? About two and a half minutes to get back? You measure that time very exactly. You know how fast the signal was moving. How fast does light, does light move? 300,000 kilometers per second. You know the time. You know the velocity. You can determine the distance directly to Venus. Once you know the distance to Venus, if you know what three-tenths of an astronomical unit is in kilometers, well, it's a very easy step just to say, well, what's, what's one astronomical unit? once you've actually gotten that determination. So that's how we're actually able to measure that. It took a long time to be able to get the real scale of the solar system, how big things actually were. We knew relatively how big they were. We could say that you know, Earth is 1 AU from the Sun, Jupiter is 5, Saturn is 10. But to know how far those were in miles were not something we could learn directly and accurately until relatively recently with things like radar in order to be able to measure that. All right, on to another astronomer, physicist, is Isaac Newton. And Newton gave us a number of laws. We're going to look at a couple of them here. We'll start looking at the laws of motion today, and then we'll get to gravity on Friday. But Newton gave us three laws of motion. So Kepler had three laws of planetary motion. Newton gave us three laws of of general motion, of generally, to just apply all objects. And his first law said an object remains at rest or in uniform motion 
unless, if I can spell, try again, <coughs> unless there is an outside force. So unless there's an outside force acting, an object is either going to stay in one spot, no outside force acting on it right now, it's going to stay there. If no, no outside forces act on it and we come back on Friday, it would still be sitting there. Now if somebody came and moved it, then there's an outside force acting. But otherwise, it's still going to be there on Friday, right? It's not going to change its position. So that one makes sense. The other one says that if something else that is moving in a straight line at a constant speed, we'll keep doing that as well. So if we take the object and we start it moving, it's supposed to keep going forever. It doesn't, right? Why not? Where's the outside force? Friction. friction. So it's not, it's not going in a straight line forever because there's friction. If you did it on an air hockey table, it would go all the way across, right? Had the air running, it's going to slide all the way across. If you did it out in space, it's going to slide all the way across. A nice icy surface. Okay, do a ball instead, right? A ball will roll, do a lot better. It won't actually slow down near as much. But there is an outside force acting on it. But unless something outside acts on it, it's going to move in a straight line at a constant speed. So if you're out in space and you throw something, it's going to move in a straight line and it's just going to keep going. It's not going to, you know, turn around and come back or do anything else. It's going to go in a straight line at a constant speed unless there is some external force, something outside of that, of the system itself that's causing it to change its motion. So if some sort of external force acts on it, that it's, you can go here, okay, I get it moving, whoops, break it, right? It falls, all of a sudden it hit the edge of the table, you know, gravity was always pulling on it when it's on the table, right? There's still a gravitational force, but the table pushbacks up and cancels it. Once you get rid of the table, all of a sudden you have an external force, so instead of going in a straight line, it's going to get pulled down to the ground by gravity. There's now an external force of gravity. And that's what's happening with the planets. The planets all want to move in a straight line around the sun. They don't want to go around the sun in orbit. They want to go in a straight line. But the sun's gravitational force pulls them and deviates them from a straight line orbit and keeps them in their circular slash elliptical orbits. Newton's second and third laws Newton's second law says, write that one as an equation again, F equals MA. You may have seen it written that before. I do it F equals MA. They do A equals F over M. It's the same equation. Uh, it just depends on which side you put everything on. It's an identical equation. But really what that says is that if you exert a force on an object, its acceleration is inversely proportional to its mass. That means if you push on two objects, you push on a cat, it move, I can move it, right? As long as it doesn't dig its claws into something. But you know, I push on a cat, it's going to move. If I put that same force on an elephant, it's not going to do very much. You know, push then a certain amount, the cat's going to move. Push a little hard, push on the elephant, same, same force, not push harder. I don't think pushing harder would make much of a difference either, but not that strong. But it's going to depend on how much it's going to accelerate, how much it's going to move depends on the mass of the object. So a bigger object is not going to be likely to move near as much. 
you know, I can push on, I've been pushing on this little highlighter, it moves very easily. I can sit here and push on the wall till the end of class, and I can sit here, I could stay here till next class and keep pushing on it. It's not going to go anyplace. You know, it's too much mass there with everything connected, there's too much mass, I'm not going to be able to move it. And then finally, the third law is action and reaction. So when object A exerts a force on object B, the, moon, the Earth pulls on the moon with, grav- with, a, with force of gravity. It says that object B exerts an equal and opposite force on object A. So that means the gravity of the Earth is pulling on this with some force. Some amount of force pulls it down. Well, guess what? This is pulling on the Earth with exactly the same force. So this is pulling on the Earth with exactly the same amount of force. It's pulling the Earth up. What's changing? What's different between the two? Second law. What's the mass of this compared to the mass of the Earth? So how much is the Earth going to accelerate upwards? Nothing, right? Yes, some teeny tiny minuscule bit, but it's essentially nothing. Whereas this is going to accelerate downward. If you have objects that are closer in in mass, you actually will will see that a little bit differently. But every object exerts a force. So this is pulling on, the the Earth is pulling this down. It's pulling the Earth up. They meet in the middle someplace. Unfortunately, the middle for the Earth, because of the big difference in mass, the middle is essentially the ground where it is. Nothing really moves. So I'm going to go ahead and finish up there, and then we'll stop there. We're about out of time, and then I will finish up. Gone through most of Newton's laws, just to give you a rough overview here, and then I'll finish up Chapter 1 on Friday and probably get to start on Chapter 2. Questions? Ready?